a practice might be established. Now I've turned you to Romans chapter 6 because I want to concentrate just uh, for the time available on a couple of verses and they are here first of all um, in the beginning of the chapter we'll read at verse 1 of Romans 6 and it says what shall we say then shall we continue in sin that grace may abound God forbid how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. We're going to pause there because what I want to do first of all is, is quickly put these words into their context. And um, I suppose those in the UK who know me a little better than you do probably get tired of the fact that I keep using the context word. But it is all important. Context is always important. So in this section of the epistle, uh, Paul has already spelled out the wonderful truth of how those who are under condemnation can know what it is to be justified by faith. And he spelled out the glorious truth whereby God can remain just and yet be the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. How can a righteous offended God legitimately and finally and fully put away our sins? And that's all been explained in the earlier chapters. Indeed, up until toward the end of chapter 5, the theme of Paul's teaching has been about sins. It's been about the deeds that you and I have done that have attracted the judgment of God. He's going to turn in chapter 6 to sin. And you young brethren who are growing up to be gospel preachers must understand the difference between sin and sins. God doesn't hold me responsible for being a sinner. That's not my fault. It's Adam's fault. I had nothing to do with that. And God is not unrighteous. So he doesn't hold me responsible for being a sinner. Now, sin does have its consequences... And this epistle spells out that the consequence of sin is death. That's in chapter 5. By one man, sin entered into the world, and as a consequence, death came by sin. So sin, the principle, the root of the thing, it makes man subject to death. But sins, the wrong deeds that are committed... They make a man liable to judgment. Sin makes me subject to death. Sins make me liable to judgment. Now that's important to understand, and I'll speak very tenderly, lest it should have involved some dear brother or sister in the company today. I speak very tenderly, but on occasions babies die. And if a baby dies, it proves the point that by being a sinner, because of what Adam did, 
the babe is subject to death. Death can claim it. The baby's a sinner. But that baby has done nothing wrong personally to offend God. It has committed no sins. Therefore, it's not subject to judgment. Sin makes it liable to death. Sins are what make us liable to judgment. Now, years ago, when I was on business in the city of York, I read on a tombstone some very quaint English, but I think you might understand it. And it simply asked the question, it said, Bold infidelity, turn pale and die. Beneath this stone, four sleeping infants lie. Say, are they lost or saved? If deaths by sin... They sinned, for they are here. And if heavens by works, in heaven they can't appear. What then? Turn to the Bible's sacred page. The knot's untied. They died for Adam sinned. They live for Jesus died. And so we need to understand that sin makes us liable to death. Sins make us liable to judgment. And Paul has taught how that our sins have been dealt with in the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ, that death which provided a righteous foundation upon which God could justly move out in mercy toward the repentant sinner. And when you put your trust in Christ alone for the salvation of your soul, God reckoned the death of Christ to your account. Your sins have been fully and finally punished in him. They will never arise again before God. So we can say accurately that the penalty of our sins has been dealt with because Christ has died for me. Now Paul is going to move on. And the point he wants to make in chapter 6 is this. It's one thing to be delivered from the penalty of one's sins, the threat of judgment removed. But what is it that delivers the person from sin as a master? How is the mastery of sin broken? He turns from speaking about sins to sin. And he, start, he starts using words like reign and dominion and mastery. And his very clear point is this. That where I am delivered from the penalty of my sins because Christ died for me, I am delivered from the power of sin as a master because I have died with Christ. Now, the first of those things we were very familiar with. We thank God for them. And each of us can say, who know the Lord as Savior, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. But now when it comes to the truth of sanctification, we need to move on and realize that not only has Christ died for me, but I have died with Christ. And Paul is going to speak about that, and he's going to speak about baptism in the context of that. 
There might be a young believer here today, or an older one. There might be a person here today whose faith is savingly in Christ, and you're not baptized as a Christian. Now, I don't know if you have the idea out here that sadly seems to be abroad in the United Kingdom, but from somewhere we've got hold of the strange idea that people get saved, and then subsequently, when they feel like it, they apply for baptism. I find that nowhere in my Bible. What I do find in my Bible is that when souls are saved by the grace of God, they are then instructed by believers to be baptized who make every arrangement for that to happen swiftly. Let's look at the verses we've just read. It might be helpful just to see that there's a very distinct structure to chapters 7 and 8, uh, 6 and 7, I should say, sorry, chapters 6 and 7 of the Roman epistle. Paul's very clear in the way that he teaches things. I see many of you making notes, so you might make, like to make a note of these things. The general order in these chapters 6 and 7 is that, first of all, Paul makes a statement of truth. And having made that statement of truth, he anticipates a question that will arise because of it. So he makes a statement, knowing the Jewish mind, knowing the Jewish thinking particularly, he is now going to raise a question the purpose of which is really to bring out the truth of the statement that he's just made, a rhetorical question. So, a statement and a question. And the answer to his question four times over is, in our authorized version, God forbid, may it not be so. It is not to be the case. So, a statement, a question arising from the statement, a response, God forbid. And then, a detailed explanation as to why the question is untenable. That's a good form of teaching. So he makes the statement, raises the question, it meets this bold response, God forbid, and then he gives an explanation of the truth that comes out of it. Let's just observe how he does that. Verses 20 and 21 of chapter 5 form statement number 1. Moreover, the law entered that the offence might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. That's his statement. The question then, at the beginning of chapter 6, is what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? The point is this, that, that in his statement he said it is the it is the abounding of sin that has brought forth a superabounding grace to meet it. You sing a lovely hymn out here that we don't sing in the UK very much at all, if ever, but you sing uh, a hymn that has the word something like this, grace that is greater than all our need. Now that's the superabounding grace of God. But now having spoken about sin abounding, but grace always abounding more, he says the question might logically be posed, well, why don't we carry on sinning so that God has the opportunity to show even more grace? And that's what meets the response, God forbid. Far be the thought. Never should that be the case. 
And he then goes on to give a detailed response, which begins in the verses we've read at verse number 2. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And that explanation will go down to verse 13 of chapter 6. Now, when you get to verse 14 of chapter 6, there'll be another statement. Here it is in verse 14. Sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under law, but under grace. He then supposes that that will raise a question. There it is in verse 15. Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? It meets the response, God forbid, and it then has its explanation from verse 16 down to chapter 7 and verse 4. Then at chapter 7 and verse 5, he makes statement number 3. And having made his statement, which I'll not take time to read, he then, in verse 7 of chapter 7, comes up with another question. Is the law sin? Response? God forbid. Explanation? Down to verse number 11. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law, and so on. And that finishes at verse 11. Now, for the fourth time, he makes a statement. Verse 12. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. The question, verse 13. Was then that which is good made death unto me? It meets the response, God forbid. And there's then the explanation, beginning in verse 13 and going to the end of the chapter. Now that structure might just help you as you go back to Romans chapter 6 and 7 to study it. Now, observe something else, please, just before we look at one or two points of detail. Notice in verse 3, Know ye not, verse 16, know ye not, chapter 7, verse 1, know ye not. See, there's certain things that we are expected to know. We are expected to know them. Your Christian life cannot be one of little homilies about discipleship and things like this. Little exhortations to love one another, good those things might be. You need to get down to a study of your Bible. Now you expect me to study mine. But you should be studying yours. It might not be that you need to study your Bible to stand where I'm standing. But if you don't study and diligently read your Bible, how will you ever know what God is saying to you? It's why so many Christians drift aimlessly. And they have a little dabble in this because they fancy a go at it. And they have a little shot at that. And and nothing ever comes of it. And so many Christians have, have, have just ignoring the basic essential of prayerfully reading the Word of God and letting God speak to them through the Scriptures. And six of us could sit down with the same passage for an hour, and after an hour, God will have spoken to the six of us in completely different ways through exactly the same passage of Scripture. That's how he speaks to you. You're not going to get big flashing lights in the sky. And you're not going to get sudden jolts of inspiration. God will speak to you through his word. 
It's why now I'm big enough and ugly enough to say when the brethren say, we want you to give a report of how the Lord called you. I just say with respect, no, if you don't mind, I don't do that now. Number one, it was far too personal an experience. And number two, if I try to explain to you the verses that God spoke to me through, and my dear wife, if I try to explain to you the verses he spoke to us through, you'd say, you're nuts. How did you get that from those verses? And the probability is I couldn't tell you today how we got what we did from those verses. But at the time, we definitely did. You need to study your Bibles, young ones. If the older ones aren't doing it, they're not going to learn to do it by now. They've left it too late. But don't you young ones waste your lives. Don't just read your Bible, study it. Pray over it. Let God speak to you. You speak to him in prayer, and he'll speak to you through his word. It's not mystical, it's real. Know ye not? Know ye not? When you read a phrase like that, it should be a challenge. Do I know it? Paul is very fond of the expression. And whenever you come across it, you should be challenged by it. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Now what does that mean? There's baptism mentioned in this verse, verse 3. There's baptism mentioned in verse 4. So now we're just going to take a few minutes to look at it. Because the importance of this act of baptism is that until you as a Christian are obedient to the Lord in baptism, you're not going to make progress. It really is that important. It's not some ritual, it's not some rite. It is a very important and it should be an intelligent act on the part of each Christian. So when a person gets saved, the first thing we believers should be doing is instructing them that they should be baptized and then teaching them why. And it won't take long, but they should be taught why. And that will be their first test of obedience. You see, it doesn't matter quite so much in the context of your Western culture. Some of the dear saints with us are from an Indian background and an Asian background. They will appreciate what I'm going to say that in the pantheon of Hinduism in India, it doesn't matter to anybody else. It's just a passing interest to them, whatever deity you worship. They've got more deities than they can number. So if a boy or a girl comes home on a particular day and they say, hey, mum, dad, Jesus is my Lord, they'll say, oh, that's good, that's interesting. That's, that's good. Uh, Ganesh is my Lord, maybe, and... Hanuman, the monkey god, might be your mother's lord, but as long as you've got a lord, that's the main thing. They've got lords many. But you know, those ungodly folk understand immediately when a Christian gets baptized. They just understand what it means. I was at the baptism of a dear woman who was a surgeon in a local hospital, and God saved her as we preached the gospel. And she was baptized along with others a couple of days later. And while that dear woman was being baptized, her husband and her sons were burning her effigy in the high street of the town. They knew that for them, their mother was gone. And so did she. Know ye not 
that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. So many of us. Who's the us? So many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, so there's a divided group here. So many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, so that means some others were not. You follow my thinking here? So many of us, so who's the us? What does it mean to be baptized into Jesus Christ? When did that happen? What does it mean to be baptized into his death? No, you're not. Now we go back in the argument that Paul has laid out in these pages. And in the end of chapter 5, he's going to point out in that parenthetic section that begins in verse number 13 and runs to the end of verse 17. He's going to speak of those in verse 17, they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. They which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. He's speaking about those who have got saved, men and women, part of Adam's race, who have now got saved. They have received the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. Adam is the head, says Paul, of a, of a race. But out of that race, there are those who have received grace and the righteousness of God. So as he pro uh, progresses in his argument, and he says, Know ye not that so many of us, so many of us out of Adam's race, so many of us out of the entire world of men, the race of men, so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ. Well, what's that talking about? Well, now we need to just think how the word baptism is used sometimes in Scripture. And, of course, by definition, it means to immerse. And it means for someone to be submerged and for them to emerge again. It's a complete submergence and immersion. Now, the medium for that might be water, but it might not. For example, in Acts chapter 2, the medium wasn't water, it was the Holy Spirit. Those who were in the upper room were in a room. It wasn't as grand a room as this, but suppose it was. And they were all in the room, 120 of them. And then the Holy Spirit came and filled the place where they were, says Acts chapter 2. They were quite literally immersed in the Holy Spirit. They were in the room. He filled the room, so they were immersed in the Holy Spirit. That was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It only happened once on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, with the purpose of the church being born. It was a collective thing. So you didn't have an individual baptism in the Holy Spirit, but when you got saved by the grace of God, you came into all the effect and all the good of that baptism that took place. You weren't there in the Garden of Eden, but when Adam sinned, you sinned with him, and the evidence of that is very clear in your life, may I say respectfully. And of course, we weren't there at Calvary. Not literally, but thank God, all that took place and transpired at Calvary has been reckoned to our account. We're identified with Christ. 
We're identified with Adam in Eden, identified with Christ at Calvary, identified with the disciples on the day of Pentecost. And then Paul uses the word further in in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and he speaks about the time when at the crossing of the Red Sea, the children of Israel were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What he's teaching them is this. That nation became wholly and totally identified with that man. See that? You and I were wholly and and totally identified with Adam. What he did is what we did in him. Totally identified, thank God, with Christ at Calvary. Totally identified with those men in Acts chapter 2. And in, in the sense of that identification... Paul says, now as many of us from Adam's race who have been totally identified with Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? As many of us from Adam's race who have been totally identified with Christ must necessarily have also been totally identified with his death. And what he's teaching us is this. That, that the moment I put my faith in Christ and became one with him, I'm identified with all that he did. New birth, uh, birth, natural birth, identified me with everything Adam did. And when I was born again, I became identified with everything that Christ did. Natural birth brought me into the family headed by Adam. New birth brought me into the family headed by Christ. But I can't be in both families at once. I can't be under the headship of both of those men at once. The first man of the earth, earthy. The second man, the Lord out from heaven. I can't be under the headship of both. So Paul's now describing what happened. It all happened in that moment, my dear brother, my dear sister, when you got saved. And of course you didn't know it at the time, and neither did I. But now we need to know it. No, you're not. Know ye not that as many of us out of Adam's race as became totally identified with Jesus Christ became identified with his death so that in the sight of God when Christ died, I died and that terminated my relationship with Adam. And he's going to go on to explain. Again, he's going to use the term knowing this in verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. The old man is that order of man that we were identified with by natural birth. Man after the flesh, fallen man, man in Adam. And speaking reverently, there was nothing even that God could do to repair man after the flesh. He was incorrigible. He couldn't repair him. He couldn't fix him. There's only one thing God could do to man in Adam, and that was to crucify him, to to judicially put him to death. That's what he's done. Knowing this, that our old man, all that we were in Adam, all that the race was in Adam, God has dealt with it at Calvary. 
And the moment you got saved, you became absolutely identified with Christ so that in the sight of God, when Christ died, you died. But also, it follows that if I'm totally identified with Christ in the sight of God, through new birth, through identification with Him, through the Spirit of God having brought me into the one body, the spiritual body of Christ, it follows if I'm one with Christ, not only was His death mine, but His resurrection was mine as well. And so says Paul in verse 3, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore, we are buried with him by water baptism into death. The baptism of verse 3 is a spiritual identification. And now that, that doctrinal and precious truth is going to be illustrated in a physical and a practical way. And it's going to be illustrated, says verse 4, therefore we are buried with him symbolically by water baptism into death, that like, like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For, if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Who but the divine mind who but the glorious divine heart of our God could have devised such a wonderful, wonderful salvation as this? Not only delivered from sin's penalty, but delivered now from sin's power. How have I been delivered from it? Because I've died with Christ. And having died with Christ, I have now been raised with Christ. I live in the power of eternal life now. And Paul then goes on to use three very important words. And with this I'm going to finish. Leave them for your study. Look at verse 6, please. Knowing this, verse 9, knowing that. Now in verse number 6, when you read, knowing this, it's looking back to the cross. Verse number 9, knowing that, it's looking back to the tomb. It tells us that death has no more dominion over him, therefore it has no more dominion over us. So, says verse 11, here's another important word, likewise, reckon. Reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now there's a third very important word, and it's in verse 13, and it says, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God. Now our dear brother Lindsay gave us four words, but as for me. Will you remember three more? Here from Romans chapter 6. Knowing. Reckoning. Yielding. All three are essential. It was Lindsay who said to me just earlier, I think it was today, 
So the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge says that, I'm going to use the proper English pronunciation, knowledge is that a tomato is a fruit. Doesn't tomato sound nicer than tomato? Really? I mean, you have to admit that much. Tomato. Tomato. How would you even spell tomato? Tomato. So, knowledge is that tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in your fruit salad. So that's, I think, a good way of looking at it. What are you doing? You're applying the knowledge. And, and you, dear saints, you young ones particularly, you've got, you've got tremendous minds, God bless you, and you've got tremendous minds, and it doesn't take you long to know something. But what you know, you have to reckon. You have to apply it to yourself. You have to take it as being true. You have to take it as being for you. This isn't just doctrine. This is the divine word to me. What you know, you must reckon. And when you've reckoned it, you must yield. That's that submission we were talking of earlier. Forget the first of Lindsay's words, but forget that. No, I don't mean forget what he asked you to remember, but I mean forget the practice of saying, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, the Bible says that, but no. No. Know it, reckon it, and yield to it. And these things are not based thank God, on brethrenism. And they're not based on the tradition of assemblies. We've tried in a few minutes to show you these things are based on the solid word of God. On the teaching of what God has done for you and for me in his great purpose in salvation. It's wonderful to know, and we thank God for the fact that Christ has died for us. That God anticipates that we should know and enjoy the truth that we have died with Christ. And that our death with Christ, how did it happen? It happened the moment we appropriated him by faith. His death reckoned to be ours. His resurrection reckoned to be ours. And hence Paul can write confidently to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We trust God will bless his word.